The COVID-19 pandemic rapidly accelerated a monumental shift to telemedicine and virtual care, which was not being actively pursued before 2020. Suddenly, telemedicine, virtual hospital ward rounding, virtual home care and health apps were not only buzzwords, but a necessity. As countries in the Asia-Pacific region adjust to the pandemic, how aligned are they to this new model of care? Healthcare is a high-touch industry. I don't envisage it will be fully digital. I think we need to have a perfect blending of high-touch and high-tech. We don't just need to train people about how to use pieces of technology. It's a cultural shift. We really have to redesign how we think about healthcare service delivery. We are still at early stage, but I think the development is there and it is showing a very, very good progress. This is Healthcare Redefined, a podcast which explores the vital issues driving digital change and innovation for a sustainable healthcare sector in the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Rob Cook, Clinical Director of Health Policy at Economist Impact. This podcast has been commissioned by Philips. In this episode, we will explore what virtual and remote care means in the Asia-Pacific region and what challenges lie ahead if hospitals and healthcare systems are to enable this new model of care. Remote healthcare has ballooned around the world and if done properly, it could provide improved patient outcomes and hospital efficiencies, as well as better access to care in the form of availability and affordability. In 2022, the home and the community have also become the hospital with new technologies bolstering this transition to ensure appropriate care settings. Telehealth means expert care can be brought to a patient directly instead of requiring them to travel to visit a clinician and data can be provided regardless of location. This could result in more timely decisions being made and interventions provided only when needed. Are we moving towards a hybrid model where rather than replacing in-person care, virtual care will augment and extend this to reach patients and provide the right care at the right time in the right place. I'm very pleased to welcome you to the fourth podcast in the series, where I will talk to experts from three countries in the region, Australia, Singapore and Indonesia, where health systems have been actively using virtual and remote care to improve services and outcomes. Dr. Louise Shaper is CEO of the Australian Institute of Digital Health. Also with us is Dr. Ben Wijaya, President, Director of Mandaya Hospital Group in Jakarta, Indonesia. And welcome also to Mr. Benedict Tan, Group Chief Digital Strategy Officer and Chief Data Officer for Singapore Health Services. Welcome and thank you all for joining me today. We should start the conversation by first defining what we mean by virtual care in the Asia-Pacific region. Louise, maybe I can turn to you for this one. Can you give us a quick definition? What I think is important when we're talking about virtual care is, especially for the uninitiated, is more than just what you might be thinking. So it's not just having a virtual video consult with your doctor or someone in your healthcare team. It can actually take care of people and be a great enablement of high quality, great access to care uh, across the continuum of care. I fully believe we can have all the healthcare we want and importantly what we need if we just organise it better and more efficiently. And uh, virtual care and telehealth offers a fantastic way to triage patients um, at the early stages before the determination is made that they need to physically see someone in person. 
It's true that the first thing that comes to mind when I hear virtual care is having a video call with my doctor. But this is just a very small part of everything virtual care has to offer. If I can turn to Benedict now, what do you feel patients expect from this model of care? Certainly, Rob. Um, from our experience, patients would expect the same level of care as well as outcome. And to some extent, many of them would also expect perhaps a reduction in the fees, in the price because of convenience. And the last and most important part is accessibility to care, right? We actually implemented a chat board for our children's emergency in the KK Women and Children Hospital, where public can actually assess our chatbot and ask questions. When we implement the chatbot, there was a significant decline in the number of A&E visits, and that really, really helped uh, by triaging. And perhaps, Dr. Ben, you can help us learn from a clinician's point of view. Sometimes felt that remote care loses some of the personal touch that you get from face-to-face consultations. Do you have any thoughts on how we might stay patient-centric in the era of remote care? Thanks, Rob, for the question. And uh, I mean, this is a really, really interesting question. You know, it's it's really a huge challenge for us. And I think one of the challenges that we we see is that when we try to implement a teleconsultation, for example, the teleconsultation itself is just one part of the whole journey. And they don't have that kind of interaction, for example, after they see the doctor, you know, normally there'll be our nurse who will actually explain to them, you know, what's going to happen next. You know, they need to take this medication, really answer their worries, for example. They have more questions that they forget to tell the doctors. You know, this kind of experience is actually quite a challenge when we do things virtually and it's really boxed, right? After the, the, the consultation is done and that's it. And there is no more chance for you to speak to someone. And what we do in our hospital is we try to do this uh, in a hybrid way. So. Uh, we do have our, our own mobile application where the patients can do teleconsultation, they can uh, book their appointment and, and things like this. But we still need to have that opportunity for the patient and our nurses or our administration staff to have a chat with the nurses after the consultation to really answer their questions if they have any worries, you know, uh, really have that kind of uh, personalized care that is still going on, even though they are not within the hospital itself. I mean, it's not a very simple task to do and we are still trying to improve the system. But I think that's one challenge that us as a hospital and also for the digital, uh, maybe our digital technology partner, we need to think together, how can we actually answer all of that part of the journey that the patient is actually experiencing that the current virtual health technology cannot answer. A hybrid model of care seems to be a good option here to make sure any questions and worries can be addressed even following a virtual consultation. So you mentioned at the beginning of this episode about the COVID-19 pandemic really being the driving force behind this recent shift to virtual and remote care. Louise, is this something that you agree with? Absolutely. I was really shocked when COVID-19 happened and everyone had to go virtual and um, a whole bunch of allied health service providers jumped on the bandwagon of telehealth, which was wonderful to see. You know, we've had um, stories in Australia of osteopaths, physiotherapists, psychologists, you know, um, especially those physical professions where we really think, oh, someone touches me, they put their hand on me and they examine me and they help me to get better. Um, and the fact that pretty much overnight, a whole bunch of clinicians were able to work out how they can care for people 
remotely when usually they would be physically touching them and they're unable to do that. So I think that one of the things that we should congratulate the entire healthcare sector for, um, because sometimes the healthcare sector can be accused of being a bit slow to adopt new ways of doing things. And yet the COVID pandemic really showed that when motivated by the right reasons, which is improved patient care, clinicians will shift and pivot on a dime and they'll be very creative and innovative to work out ways that they can provide high quality care. So the fact that, you know, those traditional hands-on professions actually worked out how to do parts of their work virtually, I think was a, a really great step to show that we can do things differently and we should do things differently. And the other comment I was going to make, Rob, is that when computers were first introduced to the healthcare sector, um, and sometimes you still hear this, it's like, oh, you know, but I want to spend time with my clinicians. Uh, I want to spend time with my patients. I don't want to be looking at a computer screen. And yet what we found is that if we actually enable healthcare through appropriate digital means and manage the information better, we can actually spend more time with our patients and spend more time with making those connections and really understanding them because we're not wasting 30% of our shift on the hospital ward looking for information and, and looking for things that really should be readily available. So I think there's a lot of potential here and a lot of fabulous good news stories around the world. Thanks, Louise. That's definitely one great benefit that's come about due to the rise in the use of virtual care, higher productivity and better ways of managing information. Dr. Ben, staying with the idea of benefits, are there any that come to mind from your experience? There, there are so many different benefits. And when we talk about the whole healthcare continuum, we're not just talking about the interaction between the doctors and the patient itself, but the interaction between the clinicians themselves with the, the whole multidisciplinary team meeting as well. And I think one of the main benefits that I see, you know, straight away is happening, especially during the pandemic, is that the doctors, with the whole advent of teleconference, for example, you know, it is, it is making doctors, it's easier for them to actually uh, discuss cases together during the virtual rounds or during the MDT meeting. Uh, whereas in the past, you know, maybe one of two very senior clinicians that can actually attend the meeting. But with this the technology, most of them can actually attend the meeting. You know, it's very rarely that they won't actually come because they can do it from when, wherever they are. And I think this is one of the biggest advantage uh, because better discussion amongst the clinician, of course, the level of care to the patients will be better as well. Not having to be physically present can mean that more people can be involved. That's something we've seen in a lot of disciplines and businesses. So moving on now to something a little different. Wearables and apps are often cited as an important part of virtual and remote care. Benedict, maybe you can share with us some examples of wearables being used within health systems to provide care and connect people with their physicians. There's a lot of progress and advancement being made in the wearables area. Uh, an example that I can share is, you know, when patients come to a heart centre for angioplasty, usually the patient would have to stay a day or two or longer for monitoring. Nowadays, right, the doctor will assess if the patient is kind of well after monitoring for him for half a day, they will attach a ECG and send him home. And remotely, the doctors can track as the patient recovered because majority of the time, 80 to 90% of the time, patients have no issues after a successful angioplasty. 
The other example I can share is continuous glucose monitoring, where patients attach a device under their arm, where it then continuously monitor the sugar level in their blood. And there are a lot more examples, and I'm kind of uh, very excited, but uh, for the interest of time, maybe I hand it back to you, Rob. These innovations really do sound exciting. New ways of monitoring post-operations and just generally monitoring conditions at home rather than in a hospital setting. I wanted to perhaps talk to Dr. Ben now about this, whether you can tell us the extent to which these sorts of apps and connected devices are being used in Indonesia. This kind of devices is starting to come up, but I don't think there is really like a device that that everyone is using, for example, that all the hospitals are using. Because I think the problem is, one one is about the price. Uh, when you're talking about the a device, a wearable device like this, uh, there, there, there needs to be some investment done by a hospital. And when, when we are talking about Indonesian hospitals as a general, you know, even some hospitals, they are still talking about, I don't have an MRI scan, those basic kind of uh, technologies. Uh, before they can start going into this kind of technology. And I think number two is also with the distribution problem because there are not that many suppliers or principals who are going into this. uh, uh, If they are not very sure whether most hospitals are going to buy the device, then most likely they are not going to bring these devices into Indonesia. And I think this is the main big problem is about this. So the availability of uh, medical devices in Indonesia for wearables. Healthcare Redefined is a podcast series commissioned by Philips. And here's a word from our sponsor. Since 2016, Philips has supported original research to help determine the readiness of countries to address global health challenges and build efficient and effective health systems. The Future Health Index focuses on the crucial role digital tools and connected care technology can play in delivering more affordable, integrated and sustainable healthcare. With almost 3,000 healthcare leaders surveyed across 15 countries, the 2022 Future Health Index focuses on how data and advanced analytics are giving healthcare providers new tools which enhance their ability to deliver care to all sectors of their communities both in and out of traditional hospital settings. Click the link in the show notes to access the report. North America currently accounts for the biggest share of the telemedicine market, with the market estimated at 15.1 billion in 2021, a 32% share of the global market. The major factors driving the demand are convenience, access to care, favourable cost and reimbursement and quality of care. Europe represents the second major regional market, but as we've been hearing, there is growing interest in the Asia-Pacific region and virtual and remote care seems to be well on the way to becoming a permanent option for care here too. But as mentioned, we need to ensure strong continued uptake and favourable consumer perception. On the question of adoption, let's now move the conversation to what some of the biggest barriers and challenges might be to increased adoption of virtual and remote care. Louise, can I turn to you first? Well, I would say, firstly, I'm going to break myths 
So in terms of one of the barriers people will think of is uh, patients' concerns around data privacy and security and, and trust. Now, those things are really important, but providing that we are really good communicators with our patients and people in the healthcare sector and are really clear with them about how their data is managed and those things concerns no longer become barriers. And at uh, RPA in Sydney, RPA Virtual, they did a survey of over 800 patients. And uh, what their survey told them, and this was in the early days of their virtual care clinic, was that 88% of people felt that their healthcare needs were met when tended to virtually. 85% rated their care as very good or good. And 98% said that they would use virtual services again if they were given the choice. So I think those statistics, it's only, you know, one survey of 800 people, but uh, I certainly uh, think that there would be a lot more data out there to back up those types of claims. So I think that providing that we take it upon ourselves in our roles as clinicians to actually make sure that people feel very comfortable and are very aware of how that their information is being recorded and used, then we can actually easily surmount any of those perceived barriers. But the other one I would say that is, again, easily uh, improved, but is actually about building the capability uh, of our workforce in digital health. We don't just need to train people about how to use pieces of technology. It's a cultural shift. We really have to redesign how we think about healthcare service delivery because the outcome that we want to achieve is seamless, virtual and in-person care. So if we think about designing our healthcare systems around making it very seamless, really designing it around the needs of the patient and the outcomes that we're trying to achieve, we should design that, that end-to-end experience. And then we can go back and say, okay, well, now we've got a clear vision. What is the technology that we need to do to implement that vision? And also what training and and cultural shifts do we need to uh, address in our workforce to make it as easy as possible for everybody to get there? And Benedict, how about in Singapore? Have you seen any hesitancy when it comes to adoption of virtual and remote care? In Singapore, we also see the same statistics, the same kind of uh, adoption or willingness to adopt telehealth, uh, virtual care uh, by the population. I think COVID actually helped a lot in that uh, change management for people to be open Uh, to all this remote delivery of services in general, right? Uh, Including education, right? Where our school-going kids, uh, you know, kind of attend uh, lectures and schools uh, from their home remotely. So it's kind of a whole system, a whole country kind of change. What uh, is a bit concerned with the relaxation of the restrictions, uh, uh, we may lose uh, the change, the forward progress change, and people may just regress back to the way things were, you know, have face-to-face clinics, etc., etc., etc. So I think the challenge I feel is that how can we maintain that cadence, keep up the momentum, and like what Lewis and Ben mentioned earlier, take a look or uh, re-examine the whole end-to-end experience, improve it, enhance it, and make it seamless, make it easier, much easier for our patients and population and our doctors and staff and so on and so forth to engage and continue with virtual and remote care. Thank you very much. And Dr. Ben, I know you briefly mentioned this before, but maybe I can give you the chance to answer the same question. 
What would you say the biggest barriers and challenges to increased adoption of virtual and remote care are in Indonesia? We are talking about two things, right? One is the adoption, how many people actually start using the service. And number two is for them to keep using the service, right? And, and number one with adoption is we are talking about education. I think that, that's the, the main issue because how to get as many people as possible to know that this service actually exists and for them to actually want to try the service because that's not easy, right? Because they need to install the application, for example, or they need to learn a new way of doing things, you know? Whereas in the past, for example, they can pick up the phone, speak to a human, make an appointment, and when they come to the hospital, everything is there for them to do. And now they need to relearn a new thing. So there needs to be a certain education. uh, And I believe that once all the hospitals actually adopt this system, hopefully in the future, more and more people will get to know or may get to taste uh, virtual uh, healthcare. And, And number two, Totally agree what uh, Benedict was saying just now, and uh, it's exactly the same statistics that we have in in our hospitals, for example. And I I think this is the same like what happened in the whole Indonesia is that during the pandemic, people are forced to actually try this new uh, virtual consultation, for example. But what we are actually seeing is that after the pandemic, you know, not many of them continue using the service. Most of them still come back to the hospital and see a clinician face-to-face. And I think, again, I totally agree that the main problem is that end-to-end service because healthcare is not just about the clinician aspect or consultation aspect of it, but healthcare is about the whole journey from the beginning to the end. Uh, I believe that that's the main barrier, to be honest, because uh, we are still at early stage, but I think the development is there and it is showing a very, very good progress. But... We need to be very fast, you know, in terms of really thinking and reinventing, you know, uh, the different parts of the journey from the beginning to the end. Once we can formulate the right uh, experience, I think I will say the right experience for our, our patients to do this virtually, I think uh, we can retain them to keep using the service. Let's hope you're right there. If we give patients a great experience, why shouldn't they use it? To finish off the conversation today, I'd like to do a little bit of future gazing now and think about what the virtual and remote healthcare experience will look like in the next 10 years. Dr. Ben, maybe you can give us your thoughts. So with, with this new technology, you're talking about the metaverse and everything is going on, you know, because what we are actually doing at the moment is that uh, we, are, we are trying to put certain parts of the journey digitally. You know, you have the mobile application to do this, you know, you need to go this to do that, you know. But we are not actually, I mean, for me personally, as a hospital management, uh, we are not really virtualizing the whole hospital. And I, I'm really excited, you know, if, if in the future, for example, that, you know, you can go into the, this digital world where you can actually experience the exact same thing, what you're going to experience in the hospital. You know, you can go in, someone human will be there to really, you know, give the human touch, answer your questions, you know, direct you to the different areas. For example, you need to go to the registration desk, you need to go to see the doctors, and after that, you get the nurse to answer the questions. And I think that, you know, if we can do that, you know, truly virtualize the whole hospital care, and, and hopefully all the digital technology nowadays are going to this virtual world, and, you know, it's going to be a very exciting 10 years, I think, if we can do that. Okay, 
Benedict, what's next for Singapore and your hospital system? Hey Rob, if I may kind of be allowed to dream, I would land on a vision where each and every one of us will have a digital twin. Um, all my health data will be kind of collected and collated and the doctors, nurses can actually remotely see a digital version of Benedict without kind of engaging Benedict. And with things like artificial intelligence and machine learning, there can be a 24 by 7 doctor that's actually looking after me because of all the data that has been collected and processed and synthesized kind of thing. And then they can trigger alerts to my watch, to my phone. And uh, agree with uh, Dr. Ben, you know, the metaverse is an area that uh, everybody's uh, going into. And I suppose that's where the digital twin would also manifest itself, would also be very, very useful. Um, healthcare is a high-touch industry. I don't envisage it will be fully digital. I think we need to have a perfect blending of high-touch and high-tech. Louise, can we have the final word from Australia on the future of virtual care and digital health? What does a great future for patients look like to you? Thanks. And look, I just love Benedict's comment earlier about, can I have permission to dream? <laughs> and uh, because as healthcare leaders, it's actually our job. You know, it's not our job to go, well, these are all the reasons we can't do it. Uh, I think having that vision and having that commitment to improve healthcare is just so critical across healthcare. And, and most people who work in healthcare do want that as well, which is wonderful. So I, I'm, I'm going to take uh, Benedict's lead there and also tell you that uh, I do believe, Rob, that virtual care is here to stay, as you said at the beginning of your question. Um, I want to have full access to my own healthcare information in full, not just a summary, with a great dashboard uh, of key information that I need access to quickly. So do the people in my clinical care team. I want to spend less time in healthcare at life admin I want to have healthcare delivered in partnership with me, designed with my needs foremost. My genomic information should be considered and integrated into my everyday healthcare experience. I should have a seamless experience across care providers, and I will see clinicians in person and virtually. I won't have to retell my story every, to every single healthcare professional I see. I believe that all people deserve access to high quality, safe and timely healthcare. And importantly, we all deserve a healthcare system that remembers me, a healthcare system that remembers us. And digital is the only way to enable that vision to happen. Thank you, Louise. That's a fantastic way to end this episode with what patients deserve in terms of their healthcare. That doesn't seem like too much to ask. That's it for this episode of Healthcare Redefined. Thanks again to our sponsor, Philips, and our guests, Dr. Louise Shapner, Dr. Ben Wijaya, and Mr. Benedict Tan. Next time, we will be looking at workforce shortages and the digital health skills gap in the region. If you like what you've heard, please follow the podcast series on your favourite podcast apps or visit the Healthcare Redefined website, where you can find articles and videos on the digital transformation of healthcare in the Asia-Pacific region. You can also find relevant links in the show notes.